The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a fellow registered dietitian, Stacia Clinton. Stacia has a unique role in that she is the Northeast Regional Director and a member of the National Leadership Team for the Healthy Food in Healthcare Program, which is a national initiative of the global nonprofit organization Healthcare Without Harm. Stacia guides local and sustainable institutional purchasing in the Northeast, and she also serves as an advisor to the Organization on Nutrition and educates on the impact of diet on individual and environmental health. She also chairs the Clinician Champions in Comprehensive Antibiotic Stewardship with physicians who focus on pediatric diseases. So welcome, Stacia. Thank you, Melinda. I'm glad to be here. Well, we have a lot to talk about, but I think your work largely focuses on antibiotic resistance and how to reduce antibiotic-resistant infections in hospitals. But you've also produced some wonderful resources for hospitals, including Hydrate for Health, A Call for Healthy Beverages in Healthcare, The Food-Climate Relationship, and Environmental Nutrition, Redefining Healthy Food for the Healthcare Sector. So a lot of good topics for us to discuss. But why don't you first help our listeners understand what is environmental nutrition? Sure. Yeah, so Healthcare Without Harm has been collaborating with hospitals and healthcare facilities for more than 15 years to work on building a healthy and sustainable environment. And part of that is helping to speak the language that the hospitals speak and transition that into a new framework that encompasses a broader concept of public health. And we know that hospitals look at food and nutrition in a nutrition sense. And so our environmental nutrition approach shifts that focus from personal responsibility for eating a healthy diet to our collective social responsibility for creating a healthy, sustainable food system. So it encompasses both the direct impacts of a contemporary U.S. diet as well as indirect health impacts associated with our more conventional or industrialized food system. I remember being at a meeting with you many years ago in Seattle. It was a Healthcare Without Harm meeting, Healthy Food and Healthcare, And I remember, I don't know if you recall this, but we were sitting listening to a lecture and we both looked at each other and said, this is why we became dietitians. It's truly food to promote health. And in no other setting, from my perspective, is it more important than to have healing food and protective foods than in a hospital. I do remember that. And you're absolutely right. And For me, you know, I became a dietitian because I feel that food is fundamental to our health. But unfortunately, I was shocked to find that when I actually got into the the field and was working in a healthcare organization as a clinical nutrition manager, that many of the recommendations I was making to my patients was directly in conflict with some of the foods that we were offering in the facility itself, which made it very challenging to recommend behavior changes. 
so I transitioned to working as a food service director, thinking I could maybe control the, the purchasing a bit more. And really, my eyes were open to this very large national purchasing structure that hospitals as institutions follow in order to purchase their food. And it often contradicts the ability to prioritize foods like those that are sourced locally or produced sustainably. Mm-hmm. So when you were in that role as an institutional buyer, what were your biggest challenges preventing you from purchasing the food that you knew was going to be best for your patients? Well, first and foremost, these organizations are, are working to be financially viable. And so we all had a budget. And in order to maintain that budget, we were given a list of approved products that we could purchase from. And this list had been negotiated at a national level by aggregating the volume or the demand from not only the facility I was working in, but from many other facilities in order to be able to get a better discount, what they call a volume discount for those prices. So we were evaluated on our ability to stay within purchasing those contracts because when we purchased beyond them, it had financial implications. So it was a very singular focus on our own institutional budget, and that was by far the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. In one of the publications that Healthcare Without Harm publishes called Expanding Antibiotic Stewardship, the role of healthcare in eliminating antibiotic overuse in animal agriculture, and we'll talk about how these things connect because it may not be clear first, there are examples of hospitals that have made specific changes for the better And this specifically deals with reducing meat purchases that have been raised using antibiotics. Why is this so important? Well, so it's interesting. You know, that document you're referring to makes a connection that I think the general public often think is there, but it's it's not, is that those practicing clinical care in healthcare are directly connected to all of its operations. So you would think that doctors and nurses and other entities are advising on what the hospital should purchase or what they should serve, but that's not the case. So a hospital might have an antibiotic stewardship program in place that only addresses the use of antibiotics in clinical care or in human health, but what they don't recognize is that 80% of all antibiotics that are sold in our country are actually sold in animal agriculture. So when we're faced with a public health issue of rising rates of antibiotic resistance, we really need to look at that area that has not received as much attention to date. And so we really call that out in the document you're referencing. You know, it was so surprising to me in preparing for this interview, I looked at some of the statistics looking at not only the cost and deaths related to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. For example, I've got one here. Well, I've got two, actually. One is from more consumer-friendly article in Modern Farmer, another one from Nature, another one from the CDC, but it looks pretty consistent that there are more than 23,000 deaths and 2 million infections with a direct cost of over $20 billion a year. I don't think that typically in a medical setting we think about the impact of what's going on on the farm. So I wonder how do you have this conversation with a healthcare provider, or even more importantly, the person who's purchasing the food, how do you get them to understand that the kind of food that's purchased influences these infection rates? Well, that's an interesting question because 
the answer would be different for different facilities and different areas of the country that we happen to work. We find that we provide a message to clinicians that may be a little different to the message that we say to administrators because their values are a little bit different in what they're looking at in terms of the organization. Same thing with a food service director. And many times we find one or two what we call champions within those organizations that really get it and are able to work to create that culture change within their own organization by providing education. So, for an example, it might be that we speak to a food service director that grew up on a farm and he recognizes that there's a lot of overuse of these antibiotics and how it impacted the health of his family, and so he becomes a champion for that work. In addition, we may see a doctor that is seeing all of his patients come in and have their conditions exacerbated because of a poor response to antibiotics, and so he might champion the issue or she might champion the issue. And it's important for us to actually really be flexible in how we try to stimulate this conversation and really tease out where are those champions in particular facilities and in particular communities, because not everybody is going to understand that connection or really value it. Mm -hmm. So how often are doctors able to influence the kind of food that's purchased? I would say not so often. Clinicians or physicians are very busy people where they're very focused on, you know, their patient's care. Many times people are coming in to see them when they're already sick and they're looking at interventions and treatments that address the illness that's presented in front of them. Of course, we know physicians many times do have the idea of prevention-based care in mind, but it's not often that there's a recognition of how food is raised and produced has these much bigger and broader impacts on public health that they're that are then translating into what they see coming into their office. And in addition to that, the food service budget within an organization is separate than the clinical budget. And it's often the chief financial officer and the administration that is allocating budgets. So clinicians oftentimes don't mesh or mix with those in their food service operation. So you've got a pretty tough job. On days, it certainly is, but I have to say that what keeps me going is the incredible tenacity and innovation that I see happening with very busy clinicians and very busy food service directors who have a lot on their plate already but are making changes. Yeah. What do you think has been the most successful way to convince them that it's worth spending more? Is there a graph that you show? Are there statistics or numbers that speak to these people? Because it does cost more to buy meat that isn't raised with antibiotics. I mean, from what I understand, many times farmers who are purchasing feed, the antibiotics are already laced or mixed in with the feed, so it's very difficult to find the kind of feed that we're looking for. What are the magic formulas to get people to pay attention to this? Mm. Well, First off, I think, you know, you mentioned something about the way that antibiotics are used in animal agriculture, and I think just awareness alone about those practices, it really resonates with people. There's three main reasons that it's used. One, makes perfect sense. It treats bacterial infections. So if you have a sick animal, you'll provide them with antibiotics so that they can get well. But the other two, one being to prevent infection and the other for growth promotion, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, to people in general. 
recognizing that antibiotics are so critical for human medicine that when they find that the antibiotics are in feed and water and that they're provided as a prevention-based measure, but not only is it for prevention-based, but it's really to compensate for the fact that the way we produce the majority of meat in our country is in a factory format where they're confined in small areas, and that oftentimes can breed infection, which is why they use these preventative antibiotics. So when people hear about that practice, it, it doesn't make as much sense, and they say, of course, I want to support changing those practices. But when it comes down to the price tag, you know, sometimes it can be significantly higher in certain areas of the country and certain products. What I think resonates most with people is the fact that the cost of not making a change is so significant that it there just has to be action taken. You know, you mentioned that $20 billion are spent to treat antibiotic-resistant infections. But in addition to that, there's another $35 billion that is spent to address productivity losses, for not for those who have actually passed as a result of an infection, but for those that are still living and have all kinds of associated uh, health impacts as a result of antibiotic-resistant infection kind of gone rampant in their system. Mm-hmm. So that resonates with people. Yeah, not to mention the, the value, if you can assign one, to the loss of quality of life. Absolutely. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Stacia Clinton. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She is the Regional Director for Healthcare Without Harm's Healthy Food and Healthcare Program. And specifically, she chairs the Clinician Champions and Comprehensive Antibiotic Stewardship Collaborative with physicians from the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society. So when it comes to antibiotic use in livestock agriculture, I would have thought that the numbers by now would have been pretty clear. You know, it's not the first time we've been hearing about the threat of antibiotic resistance. We've seen studies from certainly the FDA has come out with a statement, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I've got a a piece of data here that says the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy out of Washington, D.C., has a report called The State of the World's Antibiotics, which was published in 2015, taking a look at the current state of antibiotic use and antibiotic resistant rates in humans and livestock around the globe. And I look at this graph, and it shows that right now the use of antibiotics in the animal sector is about 64,000 tons. It's expected to go to about 105,000 tons by 2030, with the leading countries, the top three, being China, U.S., and Brazil. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty astronomical, and and just to to make it a little bit more tangible, they're looking at 73% increase in the the use of antibiotics by 2050. Even in the face of recognition that we have this issue on our hands, but an important piece to note about that information is that you notice that China, U.S. are the highest there, and that's, we are, you know, more developed countries, but they're finding that the rising rates are coming in newly developed countries. And so we're pretty much generating a similar cycle, whereas our, you know, those who are starting to develop, as they've shown that those countries that start to develop, they actually start to consume more meat. China and the U.S. being two of the top three in the world in terms of meat consumption. So we really need to start looking at that and say, you know, do we really want to do the same thing that's happened in China and U.S. in these newly developed countries, or do we start now with prevention-based measures and really address it head-on? 
Mm-hmm. Who are the stakeholders here? You mean the stakeholders in terms of, of who to make the change? Who to make the change? You know, who's got the buy-in? I would think that from a health perspective, certainly you and I agree that this is a really bad practice. It's got to be profiting somebody at some stage. You know, we know that, for example, Louise Slaughter, representative from New York State, the only microbiologist in Congress, has tried for years to get or to prohibit the use of these growth, the use of antibiotics in a growth promoting fashion in, in livestock. Can't get the measure passed. What do we need to do? as citizens, to change these policies? Yes, so that's a a very big question, and one that has quite a historical story, but at the base of it is that, you know, our meat industry is very strong and has always had a very strong presence in lobbying and legislature. If we look back into 1970 when the Dietary Guidelines released a statement that we needed to reduce our meat consumption because it was linked to cardiovascular disease, there was a strong kind of outcry from the meat industry saying that that was inaccurate and you can't say that. And it was actually that recommendation was rescinded and changed to say that actually saturated fat, it wasn't wasn't specifically meat, but it was saturated fat that led to cardiovascular disease. And we're seeing similar things happening now we are pushing back on saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't be eating as much meat. It's taxing all of our natural resources. It's contributing to this model of industrialized farming, and we need to rethink how much we're consuming. And that recommendation came out in a draft of the 2015 Dietary Guidelines and similar response from the industry, actually charging that these health and nutrition professionals were out of their scope for making recommendations that reflected agriculture rather than just specific nutrition science. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for many of us, we are trained in a certain area and then asking us to make a leap to see how maybe another area might be impacting our own. And I'm thinking, again, making this leap between agriculture and what we do on the farm and and those of us who work in a hospital or in a hospital setting, helping both silos or both groups of people understand how what we do affects each other. Absolutely. And one of the ways that I usually try to make that connection for people is that the highest rates of infection of these antibiotic-resistant infections are those that are actually working in farming communities. Mm. And what people forget is that those same farmers um, or those working on the farm are also members of the community, and those members of the community are also patients in the nearby hospitals. And so they are seeing that direct, there is a link there. And to even kind of take it a bit further, anyone that that person comes in contact with has the risk of being exposed to that resistant bacteria, depending upon if it's on their skin or if they've just handled an animal or something like that. So that's one direct way, not to mention that we know that the environment surrounding the farms, such as nearby waterways or soil, are also being impacted by the productions on the farm, um, and those are the natural resources that we all rely on. Mm-hmm. Well, Stacia, you've been doing this work for 
many years, and I'm sure you've got some success stories that you can share to show people that change can happen. Give me some examples of success stories that we can maybe bring to our own communities and help model. Well, one in particular I think about that has happened within the healthcare community that's very exciting is when we have a clinician champion that that says, I, I recognize this bigger picture and takes it to their administration. Um, we have a great example at University Health Systems in Cleveland, Ohio, same thing with University of California, San Francisco, where the Academic Senate, those are both teaching hospitals, came together and said we need to address antibiotic resistance from a comprehensive perspective. And one thing we need to do is make sure that we purchase meats raised without routine antibiotics. So that's an important piece, and they have made that commitment to work on making a stepwise progress towards that. But at a greater level for, for those in the community, I think that the hospitals that I speak with on a day-to-day basis, the food service directors, sometimes the administrators and others, are keenly aware to the needs of those that come into their facility because that's who they're serving. And if there are individuals that come into the facility and they continually mention that they're not satisfied with the foods that are being provided and they feel as though their organizations should take a stronger stance on issues related to how food is produced in this country, how antibiotics are used, that is a barometer for the facility to take into account when deciding where to allocate funds and and such. So hospitals nationally are starting to say, we need to pay attention to this, and they're banding together to aggregate their purchases and try to shift the marketplace more broadly. And that's really the biggest success story of the Healthcare Without Harm Network is that the hospitals within our network are learning to lean on each other and to aggregate their purchases independent of the industry. Mm-hmm. And then are we able to look at any data in terms of healthcare savings costs when these changes are made through the kitchen route? Unfortunately, no. And that's what the million-dollar question is, that whenever you make food changes, and we're talking about a public health issue here, there's many factors that could impact the improvement in health. And what you can say is that this action that we've taken is directly connected to a reduction in risk of antibiotic-resistant infections or other chronic illnesses and and all of that. That's a lot of the the times what we have to do within the public health sector is to look at risk reduction and that impact of our changes in food uh, because a lot of times the changes aren't direct as you would like them to see. Um, But I also think that's a change in thinking that needs to happen within our culture where we think about What's the return on investment specifically for us individually? But we really need to be looking at the return on investment for our community and our public health more broadly. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the hospitals that I recall being highlighted at the Healthcare Without Harm meeting was Fletcher Allen in Vermont. And I remember the dietitian there, Diane Emery, talking about how what really drove her hospital to make these beneficial changes was the positive PR. And I wonder, you know, how many hospitals are using the media to their advantage to show that, you know, if if I had a choice of going to Hospital A versus Hospital B, knowing that one of those hospitals had a smarter food purchasing plan, I think that's where I'd choose to take my business. 
Yeah, I mean, you may be unique in that aspect, but I don't know. I think our administration, we've brought that up as well, and I think a lot of it comes down to patient satisfaction surveys and what questions hospitals are asking in those. The standardized questions are not asking details about the types of food other than the fact, you know, was the food good? Right. Um, and so those facilities that really take an investment in knowing what their customers and their patients, their staff value, are those that are making these changes. So Fletcher Allen, which is now University of Vermont Medical Center, is one of those facilities that really values understanding the values and needs of those that they're serving. And we find that popular within other leading facilities we work with. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been asking you a lot of questions, and I want to give you an opportunity to share anything with our listeners about Healthcare Without Harm and your work with antibiotic resistance. What else do you want our listeners to know? Well, you know, I think it's really important, you know, as an individual consumer, you might learn about this happening in the healthcare sector and wonder, well, what is it really that I can do individually? And there's quite a bit. I mean, these are big issues, but every little step counts and is important because 10 years ago when we were talking about this, it took multiple mini steps of multiple individual people to actually get where we are today, where momentum is starting to build. And so I have a really, you know, a simple request of individuals is to start asking important questions about where your food comes from, asking them at your grocery store, asking them when you're in the hospital setting, and to not make the assumption that a healthcare organization or a school or an other entity has all the facts in mind when they're making those choices. You can also be an ambassador of education for those that you talk with. And so it's important to give that feedback because as a consumer, your questions and your requests matter. That's what moves the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the beauty of the institutional purchasing, in my opinion, is that it can really change agriculture because it will force a larger demand. That's absolutely true. And and I think what some people get really stuck on is that there's a lot of nuance to this is that, you know, it's not actually that we're consuming antibiotics or antibiotic residues. It's actually the practice that on the farm that's perpetuating antibiotic resistance. So that's an important clarification. And sometimes the labels you'll see on your foods can be really confusing because they mean a lot of different things. And a a label, for instance, like natural or judicious use of antibiotics are not robust or verifiable label claims, whereas a label like organic, you know, USDA certified organic or antibiotics and hormones never are actually really valid and they're audited by a third-party certification. So it's important to cut through some of those, those labels. And November 16th through 22nd is Get Smart About Antibiotics Week, not just antibiotics that are prescribed to humans, but also antibiotics use in livestock, is that correct? That's right. The CDC has done this kind of awareness week every year, and this year we're really excited to lead an activity that brings awareness within the clinical community about the use of antibiotics on the farm. Well, we will make sure that people have links to healthyfoodinhealthcare.org. That's healthyfoodinhealthcare.org, one word, for more information about this topic. I want to thank you very much for your work, Stacia, and in raising awareness about this. 
In summary, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Stacia Clinton, who is the Regional Northeast Director for Healthcare Without Harms, Healthy Food and Healthcare Program. She also serves as Chair of the Clinician Champions in Comprehensive Antibiotic Stewardship Collaborative with Physicians from Pediatric Infectious Disease. I want to thank our listeners again for joining us. Thank you, Stacia, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks so much, Melinda.